This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Reach for the Stars, and the author is Andrew Penman, and Andrew joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Mark. How are you? Great, great to have you with with us all the way from the United Kingdom. Let me read, let me read a couple things, Andrew, that you have written about your book. Bye. You say this about reach for the stars, nothing is impossible. Also learn by your mistakes so you won't do it again, right? Yeah. Well, let's go back to a young boy. You were a young boy, and you say you knew you were going to have an accident. Tell yes, us about... I don't always think, I don't always think it would be like to have an accident and do everything I do at the moment to get back to health and fitness. So how old were you when you had those that, that uh, feeling about you were going to have an accident? About um, 14 to 16. Okay. All right. And by the time you were 26, what happened to you when you were 26? Well, I was, uh, after a night out, I was, I was into drugs and all, and all that, like sulfate, magic mushrooms, and doing, well, it was all part of growing up, like, but I suppose, yeah, got into a bad habit, so. And I was knocked over when I was on my way home to my flat. I suffered a, a bang on the right side of the head, the right side of the brain, and it paralyzed me on my left side. So um, you you were hit by a car? Yes. And and I was not knocked over and I was in hospital for five months, four and a half months of those as I was in a coma. And I, I, just, I come out of the coma very, very slowly. It's not like you wake up and just be running around the next day, like on the films. It's all very, very slow. Right. You have to learn from being a baby again. So, so what was it like coming out of the coma? Oh, weird. Very, very strange. I thought I was in a prison because they had the sides of my beds, and I just thought I was in a prison. Very, very strange. You had no idea where you were? No, no. Could you remember anything that had happened? Did you remember the accident? No, I couldn't remember nothing for about two years. And things were just coming back very, very slowly. Very slowly indeed. But that is the key, and that is one of the themes of your book, right? Yes. Got to work at things. You got to be patient and work hard. Yes, and learn by your mistakes. And learn from your mistakes. Yes. Yeah. Now, you talk about also having a mildly euphoric state. What do you mean yeah. by that? Yeah, I means you're happy all the time. I was diagnosed that when I was in Rookwood Hospital the first time. So I was in a mildly euphoric state, which means you're happy all the time. So it was the brain's way of keeping you in the dark of the situation you're in. Like. So a lot, a lot of my friends who knew me before the accident say I was exactly the same. But Your first physiotherapist, Debbie yeah. Harris, now what did she yeah. tell you? She told me that Get me on my feet by Christmas with the, the maximum time to match. So I was doing all training myself to try and walk for Christmas because I thought I'd be running around and hopping, skipping, jumping like on Teddy like on films. But it's not as simple as that. I just and she said you usually reach a with your type of accents, you usually reach a um, plateau and stop improving. So I was just trained, trained and trained, 
like mad like to to to, to go through the plateau and carry on improving. I just so I done that. This is all up to you. You have to think 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 positive. It's all up to you what your yes. future is going to be in spite of this terrible thing that happened to you. Yes. Well, I've been married now 10 years. I lived on my own. I'm in a house in Grangeon, Cardiff now. So my life is much better. Very, very good. Now, uh, now you, you tell us about Peter Gillard. Tell us about oh. how he's helped you and what kind of uh, uh, skills does he have? What is he called? Peter Gillard is a sextant Aikido with the BAF. Aikido? Aikido. A-I-K-I-D-O. A martial art, which is no attacking movements. It's all defensive. It's very effective. And he's helped me a lot. When I first went to Pleasantwood Community Hall, in Cardiff, he, well, since then he just stood by me and just helped me. He's taught you a lot. Yes. Well, you say the aim of your book is to give able and disabled people hope. Yes. You know, we, yes. we need hope when bad things happen to us. Mm, yeah. Ooh. Especially a traumatic brain injury that that you have, obviously, and what happened? It's happened to you. Yes, but I've been lucky. I have because everything's happened at the right time for my improvement. Everything. Worked. And you're going to have some new kinds of treatment. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, um, on this Sunday, just gone. On some side, I went to see my Qigong master, and he recommended I do it a Qigong healing course with him at his house. So I started that Sunday. So everything's happened at the right time for my improvement. So I'll become a Qigong healer now. Very interesting. Very interesting. I've been been doing a lot of of alternative medicine since uh, 95, become interested in it. And things have just progressed from there. Right. Well... You you know that you have to, like you were told, you've got to do it yourself. You've got to, uh, yes. the rest is up to you, as, yes. as your yes. physiotherapist told you. Uh, but you found out that there's some things that you did. I guess your physiotherapist said, don't go swimming after doing weights, but you did it, and it was you felt it was really good yeah. for you. Yeah, I a lot of things I mean, used to swimming after doing heavy training, but I was too lightweight in the when I was able to. And I've uh, done a lot of things. I've, I've passed my test also on the 12th, 2012, 6th of January. Driving test after being told by drivers, uh, neurologists at Brookwood Hospital not to drive. I had a driving assessment in 95, uh, 95. I was told not to drive, but I was determined to drive. And it took me 17 years, but I just got there in the end. Right. First of all, I'd be beating to the left and the right. And it's, it's been a very, very slow job, but I just kept at it, kept persevering. And Bob, my driving instructor, he said to me, if you want to pass your test, I'll get you through it. I've had many instructors, but I was I always went back to Barbara. Very him. good. Now, what would your advice be to others who have physiotherapists? Should they listen to them? Um, yes, uh, most definitely listen to your physiotherapist. But if you feel that you can do something that's different to what they've said, try it and learn by your mistakes. That's the best way. Mm-hmm. Because you won't do it again. And there's no two people that are the same, as you point no. out. No. Do you believe no, in no. Do you believe no, in God? Do you believe in God? No. No, I believe everything is all in the heart. It's all what you've got yourself. 
big uh, good you had is uh, I'm a, I've become a, going to Buddhist uh, meetings in 2000 when I was going to Qigong and a few of them were going to, uh, to, to for a Buddhist meeting so I tagged along and uh, well, I've been, I, I stayed there for about four weekends or five weekends now. It's very interesting. They're all good people. Excellent. You believe everything comes from the heart? Yes. So up to the individual. Up to the individual to yeah, believe so many, whatever so they many, work, whatever works for that person, right? Yes, there's so many gods out there. You believe in everything. Just do yourself what you believe and learn by your mistakes and don't listen to no one else. Or so, take advice or be guided, but just try it for yourself. Your mom kept a diary, and that's how you were able to st- at least start writing your book, was from the diary yeah, she, she kept. Yeah, she kept the diary about the appointment she had to keep, yeah, to keep for the... Uh, physio and things in the first couple of years and I took it over in the first couple of years just to write things down and then in 95 uh, I did a word processing course up Seven Road School and I hobbled up there on my crutches and did done a course and I, then I got from that Tai Chi I seen people doing all strange music, movements with their arms and legs there so I just uh, joined up, and it's all come from there. And swimming, I do a lot of swimming. That's excellent for the brain. Very excellent. Well, Andrew, you're quite an example. Uh, I know you'll be an inspiration to many people and what you've accomplished uh, since your very traumatic accident. Mm. And I've... Um, I attended a psychic healing seminar. And I was told that it would be, um, well, the particular thing that was going on, it was for the weekend, and on the, one, on the first day, he said, there's someone in this room that's got a dislike for the other person. So I went home then and come back on the Sunday. I had no thought of that or nothing. Then, then I volunteered on the Sunday for um for something that was particular thing that was going on. And it came out that I was I was a sorcerer in the previous life and the person who was holding a grudge against me was a girl who I'd cast a spell on. It was very strange. It it, it took me back it did. Because I never um, I sent my discs off to um Arthur House and they when they sent them back Come back to the source, and I, I, I forgot all about it. Like, it just blanked on my mind. Well, Andrew, it's so great to talk to you. Andrew Penman, he's the author of his book, Reach for the Stars. And we can get his book uh, from Author House. You can go to authorhouse.com. You can go to any retail bookstore online and order it. Uh, do you have your own website, Andrew? Yes, it's at www dot penmanandrew dot com penmanandrew dot com very good very good well thank you so much Andrew for being with us for being with us on Author Talk thanks very much you're listening to Author Talk we'll be back right after these messages hi everybody this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. You were no 
Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Thrill of the Rookie, and the author is Osazi Ahigiato. And Osazi joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Osazi. How are you doing? Good morning. Great to have you with us. Uh, we're going to learn a lot about your life. That's what this book is all about, uh, from strife-torn Nigeria to the United States and the success you've had here because you understand it takes very dedicated work and applying yourself because this is the land of opportunity, as you so well know, isn't it? Yep. It's a great land, great opportunity for everybody both immigrants and Americans alike. For Just everyone, yes. For, for everyone. I emphasize that everyone. And you say you call your book the Holy Bible on Immigrants' Experience in the United States. So it's also got a lot of humor in it. Lots of humor. That's why I call it an adventure to a, adventure to a comic planet. <laughs> adventure to a comic planet. Very well said. Well, first of all, before we get into some of the details of, of, of your life story, uh, just tell us right now, uh, you know, uh, what, you're, uh, what you're doing right now and, and why you wrote the book. Oh, right now I'm uh, a home, I do mostly home inspection. I have a third degree in drafting. I'm a licensed uh, home inspector in Texas. I have the missionary license to work for her. I have a master's degree in hazardous material management. So I have some certification in hazmat remediation. I'm not even using both degree. I am using the first degree because if I want to use both, I will be overstressed because there's so much opportunity in this, uh, in this land. I wrote the book because I see here that a lot of people have excuses that uh, they are not able to do this. And uh, even some immigrants that come, uh, people that come from a country where it's an offense to, see, to be seen with the Holy Bible, still criticize America. A lot is not being said about the fairness and the opportunity this country has afforded all of us. So this is an opportunity to say, on behalf of the immigrant, thank you. And people that are born here that make excuses to, to it's a wake-up call that you can go to college and get a loan and grant. Anything you do here, and if you do it better than anybody else, or if you are just one of the best in that area, your skin color does not matter anymore. People will treat you with respect, and they will give you the opportunity to prove yourself. So nobody is holding anybody back. An individual can only hold himself back. So well, you got to beat the odds, and that's what you've done, right? I mean, there's always going to be adversity. Yeah, I never said this, the system is an omnis blessing. I never said there are no obstacles. In any way in the world, anything that worthwhile takes an effort and hard work. Uh, I never say it's just going to be a cool breeze. But if you want it bad enough, that's why you got to be good at what you do. You got to be dedicated. You got to be elastic. 
But if you want it bad enough and walk towards it, then the opportunity is there in this country. That cannot be said of everywhere else in the world. Well, let's go back to before you immigrated to the United States uh, back in the summer of 1985. Uh, you were... You, Grew up in Nigeria. Yeah, I grew up in Nigeria. Then Nigeria was uh, just uh, went through a civil war between the the Federal Republic and the Eastern part, known as the Biafra. After the civil war, the end, there was one uh, military coup after the other. It was so rampant there that uh, insecurity of life, and uh, you can work hard all you want. If you don't have the right people in place, the right political connection, or a godfather, no, you, you, things might not just go your way. And you, uh, except if you are extremely lucky. But it's, it's not so here in the United States. So United States became a, a land to look forward to, to. So I did what I to get here. Fortunately, I was able to secure a visa and came over here. So when I came here, I see that hard work pays. Yes, I have to go. I have to work hard. Yes, there are a lot of obstacles that were on the way. Yes, you have to be the odds. But if you are able to do that, there is light at the end of the tunnel. That's what this book is about. Because there was no future for you in Nigeria with a nation just plagued with corruption. No, no. no. The possibility was, was uh, remote. It could happen with luck, but not guarantee. Hard work does not guarantee success. Over there, unless you have a break or somebody... Take an, uh, with political connection, take interest in you, or you become extremely lucky. But over here, you work hard and you stay out of trouble and you do the right thing, then uh, the success is assured here. That is, that is the difference. And the same attitude people from uh, other, it's not just from Africa. If you see people from Asia, even people from Mexico here. Now, we have a guy that comes to cut our lawn here. Rain, whether it's rainy, is there cutting. Sunshine is there cutting. No, he has never missed a day. So with that right type of act, I have people from India, people from uh, Pakistan. In short, it was my friend from Pakistan that called the book an immigrant Bible. They have the same hunger for success because when you compare United States to where they are from, they see opportunities here that people that are born here take for granted. This is a culture of essays. So that hunger is there. That is the difference between success and failure here. It's not skin color. It's not uh, whether you are black or white or religious background. or It's not even sex. It's do you want it enough? That's, that's the difference. Now, when you got here in 1985, summer of 1985, you had $400 in your pocket, but you literally were literally homeless. You, you didn't have anyone to help you. How did you feel at that time? I feel lost. I feel hopeless, but it was a, a misfeeling. Also, I was happy because I know that I'm in a land of opportunity. I might sleep, you know. Thank God it was during the summer, it was not cold. I know somehow I'll make it. I'm already in the United States, so that's all I wanted. So I know I I, I, I was thankful. There was apprehension, but at, at, at the same time, I was very thankful to God. So your book has some uh, uh, different characters that are in it, uh, people that you met along the way. Oh, talk about characters. <laughs> Lots of characters. Lots of characters, like Mark and Bob and Ken and Lopez and Mitchell and Linda and Eric. I mean, they're, and they all have different uh, views of life and all different kinds of uh, challenges. Oh, Bob, Bob, Bob is an American-born guy. He was in his 20s. He uh, was a uh, homeless guy. No, just bully. Call, call, call him king of the homeless. 
and they call him pastor on the street, but he's not the regular pastor, he's the born against pastor. Because those are the author of 11 commandments. I says that uh, sympathy is a weakness. Now, everything they, they do is in reverse of what the ordinary law or the ordinary view, no, the view of the ordinary member of the society. You, you say show kindness, they say kindness is a weakness. You say it's better to give than receive. They are saying it's better to take than give. Mm. So, so that is why I call their own method of operation 11 commandment because it's a reverse of what the society expects from us. So he just decided to uh, be homeless, I guess. Is that what you're saying? I mean, he could have done a lot better. They could have done a lot better, but they, he, they said, I met him on the street. They said he's been going to jail since he was like uh, 15 years old. And this time, he probably may be around 24, but very successful. So he could be a footballer. He could have been a bosser. But see, he just chose the other side of life. Did not want to do anything. Kind of intelligent, too, because the way he, he manipulated people on the street. And uh, he hardly used force, but he used intimidation. And it worked for him almost every time. So, and uh, he... He was not as stupid as the rest of them. He was stronger and perhaps more intelligent. But he used it to his advantage. So he could have channeled that positively and could have done better with his life also. Well, tell us about Lopez. Oh, Lopez was, uh, was the guy I worked with in, uh, in the taco. He's also an immigrant like me. We were about the same age then. So he was uh, very hardworking, and uh, until those uh, guys showed up that we thought they were immigration, uh, and uh, Mark kept uh, tormenting us then. Mark was uh, a black American who, this is not against any set of, uh, I'm just uh, saying what happened in the book. So the guy kept uh, tormenting us calling us uh, that she would call immigration for us. So that fateful morning, those people were just uh, looking at us from the other side of the restaurant. So somebody, uh, Mike said, uh, put some pepper on your step or get fired. <laughs> so then he said something, whispered something. So we thought he was talking about immigration. So I was telling my other friend, Mitchell, I said, what did he say? I said, maybe he's talking about immigration again. Then Lopez had a... Uh, a, tack, uh, was a pan of taco in his hand. He just he goes la migra, dropped it, went out through the back door, and the rest of us followed. As a matter of fact, I always spoke to Lopez after that. He never came back to the restaurant. That was the last time I saw him. But very hardworking Mexican immigrant. But he also was uh, he was illegal immigrant then. Hardworking. Right. Well, talk to us about what you call spiritual mechanical advantage and divine favor. That, that's in the last chapter. Uh, tell us about what that means. That is the, the help of God and the beauty of the wonders of God and the beauty of his creation. Because during this process, uh, I did a lot of prayer and uh, because I don't want to take all the credit for myself. I believe there was a, an invisible hand that was helping me through. Because if you look around, look around the the earth, the way we function, look at the relationship between the moon and the earth, how the gravitational force of the moon keep the ocean in place and keep it from spilling all over us. Look at the way the earth rotates and revolves. Look at the position of the earth to the sun. A little uh, de- uh, to the right, we will freeze to death. Uh, an inch degree to the left, we might burn. Look at the spatial to leaving the, the surface of the earth. does not encounter any heat. Coming back to the earth, maybe about 90 seconds of intense heat. So there must be a designer with an intent trying to protect us from some kinds of intruder, 
yeah, into the into the earth atmosphere. There are so many things that you you can look at. Look at the organs of the body. Look at a complex machine like man. So there has to be a superior being, a designer with an intent. Who has the intent? Some people have quarrel with the word God. No, but there's a supreme being. There's a lot. No, I just this is just summary. You when you look around, you look at, when you read the book and see that there's really a superior being, superior power. And each time I pray, when I'm really in, in, in need, when my intelligence, my resources, my strength is not able to carry me, I've always I've felt the presence of God. Of course, you don't blame people that don't know, because if you don't know and you have never experienced it, then there, you have no proof. But I know there is a God that created the heaven and earth. So they just need to read that chapter. That's why I call it spiritual mechanical advantage and divine favor. Because every step of the way where I have serious problem and I'm a, a battle, I'm not elastic enough, a battle break. But God has always showed up with some uh, Americans, black, white, Hispanic. Some, somebody has always showed up and be there for me. Unmerited favor. So I cannot thank those people enough. And I also thank God that I used them. Well, we appreciate you sharing with us, Osazi. Uh, you're the author of your book, Thrill of the Rookie. You say everyone will enjoy the thrills, humors, and threats without facing the pains or challenges. This book is an adventure, as you told us earlier, to a comic planet full of excitements, challenges, and humors. Well, Osazi, tell us how to get your book. Amazon.com, BansandNoble.com, AutoHouse.com. Uh, people can simply just Google the title, Thrill of the Rookie, T-H-R-I-L-L, Rookie spelled R-O-O-O-K-I-E. Or uh, they can even go to my webpage. That is www.osazepage.com. That's O-S-A-Z-E-P-A-G-E.com. So they, they should be able to get it. Very, very good, Osazi. Thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you very much, sir. And you have a wonderful day. An honor talking to you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search. Physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, TrishaGoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Black Dad, White Dad. 
The James Womack story and the author, James Womack, joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, James. Hello, sir. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, this is your autobiography, and you say this about it. You ask this question, would you like to read a fascinating story of how a poor black boy born into abject poverty to illiterate parents in Mississippi takes the reader on a magnificent voyage around the world in 50 years. The author takes on the evils of the day and devises a system that allowed him to arise to the top of excellence and achievement with dignity and a BS degree. Well, that's what it's all about. At least it should be. It's about dignity, and that's what you understood. And I'm sure from a even though as a young person you started at the very bottom, as people would say, and even in your family, even you didn't even think your father loved you at all. That is correct. So this is obviously there is some pain here. Write your book. Why did you write your autobiography? It happened as a result of a men's retreat I went to in 1988. I had just lost my daughter. My wife had cancer. I was going through a very low point in life, and I felt that I needed to be revived. So I went on a men's retreat, and in that retreat, I was picked to be the spiritual speaker, and I spoke on forgiveness. And when 11 men heard my story, they were in tears. They said, man, the world needs to hear this story. So it was at that point that I decided to not just tell the story of my dad's rejection, but to convert it into an autobiography. So you start out in your early, obviously your early age, where black people were treated less than dirt. That is correct. And so what kind of a, I mean, how, how did you deal with that image of yourself and the way you were treated at that young age by white people? Well, I took it internally, but because uh, by the age of 13, I had become a Christian, a Catholic Christian, and knew that God loved me, so I took this kind of in internally and wore it internally, and I projected myself, believe it or not, until about age 37 as a poor, black, neglected, uh, poor, neglected blackhead. This is the way I got my warm fuzzes every day. And then I went through a drug counseling when I was working with the drug team in Europe, and we did some psychological testing, and the gentleman told me that I had projected myself out as a poor, neglected black kid, and this is where I got my warm fuzzes. You know what warm fuzzes are, right? I think I do, yeah. These, it just kind of makes you feel feel better than you probably uh, 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 are entitled to. or <laughs> Exactly, and when I discovered that that was what I was projecting, it was at that moment that I was able to change my life around. I came home, took all my old used clothes, because I had never bought any new clothes for myself. I didn't buy new shoes because I thought I didn't deserve them. And that was all because of my early childhood. And when I learned that what I was doing and understood it, I came home and put everything in the, in the happy store to sell it and uh, changed my life around. In the beginning of your book, you're using the language of the 40s and 50s, the real language, the crude, the rude, the despicable language of that time concerning black people. Yes, that's correct. Now, some may take offense to that, but you just wanted to paint reality. That, that's history. I lived it. And it obviously, you know, that kind of language has an impact. Words do hurt us, even though we you know, like to say, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones kind of thing. But that kind of uh, uh, onslaught of, of that kind of uh, ver uh, words really has, uh, it really can poison a person. Yes, it can. But again, because of, because of my belief in God, I did not allow it to poison me because of some really good white people that my mother worked for. It taught me that that was only a very few people. It wasn't everybody. My mother had worked in a home, and they told us when we came to the home not to speak to them, don't wink at them, don't look at them if we see them outside of the house. When we come to the house, come in the back door, leave through the back door. But once we were inside of the house, when my mom would cook the lunch, dinner, meals for them, we would sit on the table and eat like we were one big family. And I would play on the rugs with their kids. It's that the clan at that time was so strong 
that I think white people feared the Klan more than blacks did. Mm. Because if they were seeing being kind to a black person, they would go out and burn crosses in their right. yards and burn their houses down. So why did you join the Army in 1959? Didn't have a choice, sir. I had, um, I had won a four-year scholarship to Xavier University, but I was working to support my mother. And Xavier University, even today, requires freshmen and sophomores to carry 17 semester hours. They want you to have that extra time for research in your junior and senior year. And I was working a 12-hour job. I had to maintain a B-plus average to keep my, my scholarship. I pulled off a B the first semester. The second semester, I flunked three courses and almost had a nervous breakdown. And uh, by this time, I was tired of bussing uh, dishes and working in restaurants. I wanted something better out of life. And I couldn't get a job. Everywhere I go, there was a federal law that required employers that if they had a draft-age male that got drafted, they were required by law to hire a temporary person, fill that position until the soldier came back. And then and only then, if he did not want that job, could they give it to another person. And uh, employers across the nation took the attitude, the heck with all of that paperwork. You don't have a discharge. We're just not going to hire you, period. So I didn't have a choice except to go in the Army or go back into some backroom kitchen and start washing dishes again. And I had gotten to a point that I wanted more out of life than, than looking in a, at, at, a, at, a, at a pool of dirty dishes. So along the way, what made you finally decide to make the military a career? Well, it was not. An, I was already in 10 years. I went in initially. I was uh, majoring in organic chemistry, and I didn't know it at the time. But in 1959, I found out later that there were only four careers you could get into if you were black. You were a cook, a mechanic, artillery, or infantry. And the sergeant had promised me a career in, uh, in chemistry. So after I completed my training, I ended up in Germany in an uh, artillery unit. And they needed a bugler. Uh, the 24th Infantry Division uh, dropping the bugle corps needed a bugler. And I had played trumpet in high school, so I went and became a bugler. And that was such beautiful duty. I didn't have field duty. I got to travel all over Europe, just have all kinds of beautiful experiences. And when my three years was up, I decided I'm going to try this one more time. And I ended up uh, re-enlisting for my own vacancy. Of course, they only let me stay there a year throw me back in the field artillery. Well, I, I still had a three-year obligation to uh, commit, and then my unit got alerted for Vietnam. And out of Vietnam, they promised me station of choice, and I wanted to go back to Fort Lewis, Washington, ended up back in Germany. And when I got to Germany and moved my family into military housing, you get a little red sticky from personnel that says, aha, you have now received government quarters. If you want to take your family back at government expense, you must re-enlist or extend to complete a 36-month tour. Well, I looked at my wife, and she looked at me, and I figured, well, if I extend for another, you know, to complete a full tour over here, I will be past the 10-year mark. And it was at that point that I decided to become career military. I was halfway there. It didn't make sense to get out and give up 10 years when I could retire at 20. Now, marrying a German girl, uh, I, I imagine here, a, a white woman, uh, that probably caused some problems in the family or in at first for you? Well, not at my family. There was a little bit of disconcern all around. Uh, it, it was kind of an uncomfortable thing, but I would say that God had his hand in it. Because when I left New Orleans and joined the Army, if anyone had told me that I would have married a German girl, I would have told them it was crazy in hell. But God seemed to put special angels in my life at times when I needed them. I had I lost my mother when I was 20 years old. I was in Germany six months. I uh, got a call from the Red Cross that my mother had uh, was on her deathbed. I rushed back to New Orleans and she had surgery and after surgery her blood pressure dropped and they gave her medicine to increase her blood pressure and cooked her liver. She never regained consciousness. So I went back to Germany. I don't do drugs. I don't do alcohol. I needed a quiet place to grieve the loss of my mother. 
So I walk into this little German uh, bakery, and this beautiful young girl walks in behind me, and she swears she didn't smile at me, but I saw the most beautiful smile I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I spoke to her in German and asked her if she'd have a coffee with me, and she agreed. And we sat down and started to talk, and I discovered real quick, like she only knew two words in English, yes and no. <laughs> I knew about 500 in German, and I had my little pocket translator with me. And it took us about uh, three hours to have 15 minutes worth of serious conversation. And it was kind of fun. It took my, 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 my mind off the grief of my mom and gave me something else to think about, a, a new challenge. And on our second date, it was deja vu two weeks later. And on our third date, six weeks from the original date, she walked in. Her hair was all over her head. Her eyes were red. And she got it across to me that um, that Friday night, her father owned a big BMW 350 motorcycle, was sitting at the red light waiting for the light to change, a speeding a uh, drunk driver ran the light, hit her dad, and he was dead on arrival at the hospital. So here we were, two 20-year-olds, different cultures, different languages, uh, grieving the loss of the closest parents. She was closest to her dad. I was closest to my mom. And in that grief process, we became grieving partners, and we found out that we were both practicing Catholics. We both believed in basically the same thing, and we became a comfort zone of grieving for each other. And it was during that grief process that all of that other crap about racial differences and all that, it just disappeared. It didn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. Well, that's and wonderful. It must have been pretty good because it's lasted for 52 years. 52 years. Well, congratulations on that. Now, you describe your father as brutal and abusive alcoholic. Uh, did he ever accept you? No, never. In 1967, I was 37 years old when I came back from Vietnam. I went by, as a matter of fact, his pictures in the book, uh, uh, in the first or second per, uh, uh, chapters. Came back and I went by to try to sit down and have a man-to-man -man conversation with him. He just got up and walked away from me. But you have to understand, my father could not read or write. And when he died, he still signed his name with an X. And, you know, I have a college degree today, and I have a tough time dealing with certain situations, mental, you know, things. I cannot even imagine how a man that could not read or write could deal with some of the social issues that he was confronted with back in those days. It took you a while, but you, like you just pointed out, you are a college graduate. That must have been quite a day when you got your degree. Oh, that was that was probably the happiest day of my life. When I walked across that stage, my heart was beating so hard that I, I thought it was going to stop on me. I never dreamed that I would be able to graduate from a college or university, and that, that just really did it, that uh, I was able to go in there. Uh, I was like 50, 58 years old when I went back to school, and it just, it, just, it, it, it was an experience. It was an awesome experience. So basically, your book is got some very strong themes. Uh, one of them, do not allow the circumstances of your birth to determine your success in life. A lot of people kind of feel sorry for themselves, don't they? Yes, sir. But see, as a Christian, I've come to believe that uh, God created the world and he rested. Nowhere in Genesis does it say that God, that the creation is finished. And I may be wrong, but it's my opinion that I'm living in the seventh day. Now, everything that we have said up to this point is uh, now history. What I'm going to say to you next lies in the future. We have the ability to create the moment in which we exist. We can make it a good moment or a bad moment, a happy moment or a sad moment. And I think people are where they are because that's where they want to be. And I look at people, one of my heroes was Thea Gibson. She was a little girl born abject poverty like I was. She was born four and a half pounds premature with polio, had little legs like matchsticks, and the doctors told her she would never, ever walk. Her mother had a deep faith like my mother and convinced her that she could do anything she wanted to if she just had faith in God and, and made the effort. Althea Gibson became the fastest woman in the world in 1960. She won three gold Olympic medals in the 1960 Olympics. This was a girl that was born and told her she would never walk, you know? And she could have sat on the street corner with a can and asked for handouts, or she could try to improve upon those 
qualities that God gave her. And she did that, and she, she was successful. I looked at Dr. Ben Carson, the same thing. He was born in the same circumstances I was. And at about the age of 10, and we had strong women back when my mother was growing up, he started getting into trouble, and his mother read him the riot act. He went back to school, became a straight-A student, and he was the first human being on planet Earth to separate Siamese twins. So God does give us that, that creative ability if we are willing to go out and use it. And one of the most inspirational things that I've seen was just a couple of weeks ago, I was introduced to a, a Tony Melendez, I think his name is. This gentleman was born in Bolivia, and uh, he was born with no arms. This man plays classical guitar with his feet. Hmm. Wow. You know, I dream of playing classical guitar one day. I've got both hands. I can't play classical guitar. This man plays classical guitar with his feet. Right. He uses the talents that God gave him, and he's making the best of it. Well, as you point out, your book, Black Dad, White Dad, gives us a roadmap that demonstrates a proven method of turning scars, I like this, scars into stars. So congratulations, James. Thank you very much. Tell us how to get your book. It's right now, it's on Barnes and Noble's uh, website is at uh, Amazon.com. And people that are in my local area, I have some to sell myself. We've been listening to James Womack, his book, Black Dad, White Dad, The James Womack Story. Thank you so much, James, for being with us on Author Talk. <laughs> 